May they speak in the name of one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me begin by thanking your rector for this invitation. It is an honor to be with you this morning. In the run-up to Advent, the assigned gospel lessons offer us a series of troubling and controversial parables, all from Matthew, that focus on the twin themes of preparation and judgment. Last week, it was the ten bridesmaids. This week, it is the three slaves. And next week, it will be the sheep and the goats. Several weeks ago, we heard about the wedding banquet that none of the invited guests wanted to attend, how people were basically pulled off the street to take part, but then how someone who was not wearing the right clothes was unceremoniously thrown out. It's enough to make your head spin. I mean, assuming there is a difference, is this the kingdom of heaven or the Harvard club? It's difficult for us to imagine how the original hearers of these stories responded to them. But for many of us today, they are a hard pill to swallow. I once heard a grandmother read the story about the wedding banquet to her six-year-old granddaughter. And the little girl replied ingenuously that the king in the story was not very nice. The same little girl also wanted to know why the five bridesmaids whose lamps went out were not let into the party with the others. This very natural negative and even outraged reaction seems especially appropriate to our parable today, where the slave with one talent actually says to his master that he is a harsh man, and the master apparently agrees with him. This then leads to the master's extraordinary statement that to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. What kind of morality is this? According to New Testament scholar William Herzog, it is certainly not the morality of Jesus himself but morality of empire and oppression, colonists and plantation owners. In his book, Parables as Subversive Speech, Jesus as Pedagogue of the Oppressed, Herzog offers a brilliant revisionist interpretation of today's parable and argues that the original parable as told by Jesus must have had a very different meaning than the one that it now has in the canonical Gospel of Matthew. That is, Matthew clearly intends for the master to represent God and for the slaves to represent us as Christian disciples. Matthew's version of the parable is thus about our need to be diligent and responsible with what God has given us in this life, each according to our ability, so we are supposed to strive to be like the good and industrious slaves, rather than like the wicked and lazy one. Herzog says that all interpretations that follow Matthew here, basically the whole history of interpretation for the last 2,000 years, are theological and ethical. 
That is, they have a spiritual focus and a moral meaning. In Herzog's view, however, Matthew completely reverses Jesus's original parable, which rather than being theological and ethical, was political and subversive. According to Herzog, since Jesus himself was an oppressed peasant, his moral vision must be compatible with his social class and thus always side with the underdog. In Jesus's original version, therefore, the master is the villain, the third slave is the hero, and the talents are ill-gotten gains. Remember that the talents in the parable itself are not what we mean by that common English word, namely personal abilities, but a unit of money. Indeed, a talent was a very large sum of money, roughly equivalent to a million dollars in our currency. Far from representing God, according to Herzog, the master therefore represents the unjust political economic system that oppresses and exploits the poor. The master is indeed strict, cruel, harsh, and merciless, just as the third slave says. The third slave, by contrast, is a heroic whistleblower. The third slave speaks truth to power and suffers the inevitable consequences. Herzog thus vindicates the third slave's critique of the harsh and cruel master and argues that taking the slave's side is the only legitimate and just response for us today. To follow the example of the other two slaves who willingly do the master's bidding is to be complicit in an oppressive system. Vive the revolution. So that's Herzog's interpretation, but as brilliantly revisionist and creative and provocative as it is, I'm sorry, but I just don't buy it. First of all, I simply don't think that we can reconstruct the original message of Jesus himself as confidently as Herzog does, especially to conclude that what it was the exact opposite of what Matthew here says that Jesus said. Of course, this version of the parable is Matthew's interpretation of what Jesus originally said, and Matthew undoubtedly altered things to fit his overall perspective. This is the basic and undeniable lesson we learn by comparing the various gospel accounts. So yes, of course, the version we read today is Matthew as well as Jesus. But that Matthew totally misunderstood and misinterpreted Jesus's message such that the original version of the parable had the exact opposite meaning just seems implausible to me. I mean, it is possible, but implausible. Second, by making the parable into a subversive political manifesto about the socioeconomic structures of the day, Herzog neglects what I think is the true eschatological vision of Jesus's message. Like the other parables I mentioned earlier, in my view, this story is not just about this life, but also the life to come. 
This eschatological claim is precisely what those such as Herzog are anxious to deny. But again, I think they have taken a valid concern too far. That is, I want to distinguish between Herzog's own moral, political, and economic concerns and the parable itself. In other words, I'm not trying to simply evade Herzog's radical critique of Western capitalism and so on, which may be, well, quite valid, and which should therefore be taken seriously on its own terms. Yes, even here on Madison Avenue but rather to focus on what I think Jesus was actually trying to teach us. And again, we must admit, it is very difficult for us today to find value in a story that depicts God as a harsh slave master and us as God's slaves, which is why Herzog rejects it entirely. But in my view, it is precisely the parable's troubling and discordant images which do not sit well with us, which we are called to meditate upon and seek to know what they mean, not to explain them away or turn them on their heads. However, we finally reconcile the harshness of the king or master or judge in these stories with what we believe to be the mercy, love, grace, and justice of God. They tell us that the stakes are high and we need to be prepared. I mentioned earlier that the term talents in the parable are not personal abilities, but a large sum of money. Ironically, however, the original translation of this parable in Matthew chapter 25 from Greek to English in the 16th century is in fact precisely where our normal English word talent does come from. That is, before Herzog, it was always assumed that what Jesus was really talking about here was not in fact economic, but personal in nature. If so, then ironically, Herzog goes wrong by taking the talents to be about literal money, after all, rather than symbolically representing personal gifts. In the parable, the master gives one slave five talents, one slave two talents, and one slave one talent, and then later asks them to render an account of what they had done with those vast amounts. But the amounts are not truly monetary. And to take them as such is to misunderstand the parable. In the parable of our own lives, we have each been given an enormous treasure. The treasure of life, the treasure of time, and the treasure of various gifts and abilities. Yes, the allocation of this treasure is dispersed unevenly among us, often quite dramatically so. And we are thus baffled at what Paul Tillich called the riddle of inequality. That is why some have more innate abilities than others, not to mention other benefits such as worldly goods and happiness. It is indeed a mystery, but the mystery is not merely reducible to our social, economic, and political systems. For in all such systems, even if everyone was equal on some levels, personal inequalities would still remain. Some would still be smarter than others and more gifted and so on. 
But no matter what we have, whether it is one talent or 10, it is a truly vast amount, far beyond our capacity to assess its full value. This is what I think Herzog misses about the third slave. Even though he was given comparatively less than the other two, it was still an enormous sum, more than enough to do amazing things with. So then why his fear and resentment? In the end, I think we cannot answer the question of why the third slave responded the way he did. Nor can we make full sense of the master's claim that to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is, after all, a parable. But in the parable, this mysterious claim is not about money or worldly goods, but about something deeper and more profoundly rooted in the nature of reality. Yes, of course, we must strive to create a more just world in which wealth and power are distributed more equally than they are among us at present. That should go without saying. And maybe we need to take Herzog's politics more seriously than I take his parable. Again, I don't want to avoid his radical critique and challenge as such. I'm not trying to get us off the hook here. But on an individual basis, we begin to accomplish this task by asking ourselves two questions. First, what have we been given? And second, what are we doing with it? We can receive our portion with gratitude and seek to make the most of it, investing it and multiplying it and generously extending it to others. Or we can fearfully and resentfully hide what we have in a hole in the ground where it does no good at all to us or to anyone else. The choice is up to us. And so are the consequences, whatever they may be. As the Apostle Paul and Jesus and the Boy Scouts and Scar from the Lion King all tell us, be prepared. So let us act accordingly. Now to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, be ascribed as is most justly due all might, dominion, majesty, and power, now and forevermore.